almost through the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at the great white throne judgment seat this morning. So we're in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. <clears throat> the millennium reign of Christ reveals uh, some disturbing psychological truths about mankind. We are, apart from any outside influence, prone to sin. And we are desperately in need of a Savior for ourselves. We have also heard that Scripture has to say that God will judge rebellious man. And many times that's sort of old school for us. We don't want to get into those thought patterns, especially in today's world that seems to be so superficial, so candy-coated. And oftentimes we will escape into self-rationale thinking, or, as I like to say, stinking thinking. And we as Christians, most of us, when we're pressed, when we're confronted by the outside world about our faith, we will come forth with a strong confession of faith. And that's good. Uh, however, not all Christians share our beliefs in the infallibility of God's Word. And that troubles me on several fronts. And as we study and read how God uh, will close down the history of man, how He will draw the curtain, many skeptics, or even what I call marginal Christians, they choose to approach God's Word as being allegorical or symbolic. And they have the question, does God really control end-time events? Well, I'm glad he does. The Calvary chapels, what attracted me to them was their teaching of God's Word, but Calvary chapels interpret Scripture in a simple, straightforward way. Unless Scripture says otherwise, take it literally. No allegories, no symbolism. If it says it literally, take it literally. And I speak with Christians all the time from different faiths and different denominations and what I consider, you know, uh, a limited understanding of God's Word. And there's a tendency with the ones I speak to that they dismiss uh, the difficult passages of Scripture. But when John writes about a thousand-year reign of Christ, guess what? I think it means a thousand-year reign of Christ, you know. Or when John writes that Satan will be cast into a burning lake of fire and brimstone, well, to me it's a lake of fire and brimstone, okay? I take God's Word, and I'm, I'm sure you do too, at face value, and that is healthy. 
That is an intelligent approach to God's Word. The alternative, if you don't take God's Word literally, you set yourself up as the judge of God's Word. And you only accept what your intellect deems reasonable or, as we like to say, rational. Christians, and there are a lot of Christians, and we're divided on a lot of issues, such as politics, uh, even Alabama and Auburn, but uh, as believers, as believers, with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, I want to encourage you to be firm in God's Word. Be firm. And one of the heavy things about God's Word is it speaks to us for today. It speaks to us about life. And that's why we at Calvary Chapel study the entire Bible. All of God's Word. For we feel that it's for our reproof and our correction. We happen to believe in Unfortunately, I think we're in a minority today in the balanced approach of the full counsel of God's Word. It always amazes me when Christians don't accept parts or chunks of scriptures or they read their theology into scripture. And I'm always taken back by that. I think everyone here can appreciate the fact that we don't hammer you for money. That is an issue that we only approach when it's spoken of in Scripture. I only talk about giving of tithes and offerings when our passage talks about tithes and offerings, or I should only talk about it then. <laughs> Occasionally, we'll have visitors come in here and they'll say, uh, you didn't take up an offering. How do I give my offering? I say, we got little boxes in the back. Sink them out. Find them. <laughs> you know, put your money in there if you want to give an offering. Uh, and that is a great blessing for me as a pastor not to have to hammer you people on giving. Our needs are met. And I'm blessed to say that. Many churches, and you've been to them, I've been to them, I've been to services where they take up more than one offering, where they pass the plate more than one time in one service. You know we've yet to pass the plate in this building. We've yet to pass the plate. And when we were on the parkway, we didn't pass it there either, by the way. And we don't put up the thermometer charts that show where your giving is and try to put a guilt trip on you about giving. No building fund campaigns. No missionary Sundays. Except for George and Louis. No. <laughs> Yet we support missionaries. When I uh, was growing up in church and attended church for many years, the pleading for money 
was such a turnoff to me. And I know that there's nothing wrong with making your needs known. We're told to do that, make your needs know, known. But there isn't anything wrong with saying our needs are met, too, and our needs are met. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And when a church begins to plead for money, are they not exhibiting a lack of faith? Let me explain. If the pastor is telling the people, you people need to trust God for your money and for your finances and for that job promotion, but then he begins to beg and plead for money, is he not exhibiting a lack of faith from the church's standpoint? He is, by the way. Now, we are called to be good stewards, and I won't try to dodge around that. And we're called to be accountable for the monies that pass through our hands. And Jesus told us, he said, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven that the moth and the you know rust can't destroy. And the giving of funds is one of the ways to do this. But that's just one of the things that you will find common in most of the churches that are out there today. They make their needs known and they they plead for money. We don't want to be doing that. But we want to talk about this morning the great white throne judgment of God. And that's in Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. Let me read. Then I saw a great white throne... And him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades del delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. How straightforward can you get? The great white throne judgment. It is definitely a judgment you want to avoid. <laughs> and the only way to avoid this judgment is to accept by faith Jesus and his atoning work on the cross where he was our substitution, where he was God's sacrificial lamb for our sins. But the great white throne is the judgment for all of mankind, past, present, future, who have not trusted in Jesus and his work on the cross. We Christians, we will be judged, but our judgment is a works judgment, not a heaven or hell judgment like the great white throne. But our judgment is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 5, verse 10. And it says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That judgment is known as the Bema Seat Judgment. A Christian judgment, a rewards judgment. Each and every human being who has ever lived will stand in judgment. Christians to receive rewards for the works that we have done in this body. That is what we call a no-fear judgment. The only thing is rewards. However, at that judgment, I think we will have concerns. Concerns like, why was I so hesitant? Why was I so slow to de devote myself completely to the Lord Jesus and to His kingdom? I think we'll have those kind of concerns. Even possible regrets at the Bema Seat Judgment, but there is no fear of that judgment of heaven or hell. No lake of fire judgment. It's a win-win type rewards judgment. Not so with the great white throne judgment. Verse 11 in our text. The one who sits on the great white throne, he has this multitude, this sea of people before him that they cannot bear to even look upon him. Our God is sitting on his throne, and without a doubt, he is there in the awesome fullness of his triune power and being. He sits on a white throne, a throne of purity and holiness, a sovereign throne, absolute authority is his. A throne which men of the earth, it says, have wanted to flee from. They want to flee from the purity of God, the authority of God, because they're impure. But it says, but there was found no place for them. There was nowhere for them to run and hide. No one can escape the great white throne judgment which is to come, except Christians who have already trusted in Jesus and Jesus who has taken on our judgment of sin. Thank you, Lord. And John, he sees the dead all those who have ever died apart from Christ, and they're gathered together for their sentencing. Their eternal fate lies in wait. They're not there as a trial. They've already been found guilty. Now they're just awaiting their fate. They're only awaiting their final destinies. And the books books that God himself has recorded, <clears throat> they're opened. The book of life, which this multitude is standing before God at the great white throne, none of them are found in the book of life. 
And then the other books that have been recorded, the ones that have recorded each and every work and every deed, every thought of mankind, of every person, these are the books that are opened and man is judged from. It's interesting to me that God not only sees the righteous acts of us, his saints, but he records the evil and rebellious acts of this world, records the works of each and every man, and it's from these books that have recorded these works that mankind will be judged at the great white throne. Sinful mankind, this tremendous multitude is judged by what is written in the books. It's interesting that Scripture would point this out. They're not judged according to the whims or the mood of, say, a person like an earthly judge. They're not judged by that whatsoever. They're judged by what is recorded in the books. There's uh, quite a few that have speculated that these resurrected for judgment that these that are standing there have their whole life passed before them, before their eyes, in a moment. And I think, yeah, perhaps, or I actually say probably. It's interesting to note, though, that this is not where Luke in his gospel records that many will say, Lord, Lord, open for us. That time has already passed where Jesus says, I will tell you, I do not know you. I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. That is not this occasion. Nor is it where any person who has ever suffered pain wrongfully or has chosen to express their heartache and their hurt, to express it at that it being God's fault. And there's a lot of people that do that. We hear all the time, how could a merciful God? And then they cite their case. Contrary to what some believe, this great white throne will not be a time where anyone dares to question God. Look back at verse 11. Sinful mankind wants to flee. He wants to run away from the presence of God and His throne. This multitude, they would be like Peter was when Peter declared, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Sinful man will be afraid of a righteous God. No question about it. His holiness will overwhelm them. Not for a moment, not for a split second, will man dare to consider questioning this almighty, awesome God that they stand before. It is man's depravity, it's his prideful depravity to think as a mortal being 
that I could question the all-knowing, all-powerful God. It will not be that way. That happens to be a, a prideful, so, uh, foolish notion of sinful man. John, he gives us further insight as to who stands before the great white throne. And he says, the sea gave up its dead. <clears throat> have you ever thought about how many people have died on ships or drowned from ships sinking? Probably millions upon millions. Death. And Hades, they, the grave, they also give up their dead. And so the sea and death and Hades combined, there will be billions of souls there standing before God. And all of these, they're going to be judged according to what is written in the books, according to their works. Now, think with me, how much time would this take if God were not omnipresent? Billions of them. You're going to sit there and listen to billions of them pass before God? No, God is omnipresent, so He will deal with each and every one, one-on-one, -on -one, all at the same time. And every person who has ever lived will be required to hear the readings from these books where their deeds were recorded. Every work that you did as a sinful person will be recorded. Works like when I lost my temper and hit someone or kicked the dog. Works like when I was very selfish. Works of rebellion, hate, murder, envy, strife, thievery, you name it. All the evil works, even works that nobody else but God knows about, are recorded. Works where another person you allowed another person to take the blame for your sin or your shame and you remain silent and let them take that blame. But it's, it's noteworthy to understand the primary work that is not recorded that condemns each and every man there John writes about in his gospel, chapter 6, and he says, 6, 28 and 29. <clears throat> then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. There it is. There is no need for any other evidence against a person. God the Father himself condemns any and all who refuse to believe in his Son. <coughs> End of story. You don't believe in my Son? Only death and hell await you. It's a fearful thing 
to reject God's Son. And this is what the great white throne judgment is all about. God the Father wants to know why any person would reject his son, and then he will judge accordingly. The only saving work any of us can do is simply to believe in Jesus. Christianity gets real simple, doesn't it? That's not complicated. Believe and trust in Jesus, have eternal life. Reject him, have eternal damnation. When you refuse to believe, you condemn yourself. And scripture doesn't stop there, and it says, and you will be cast into the lake of fire. Those are not my words. If, if I said that, you might have reason to get upset with me. That's not my judgment, but that is the judgment of Almighty God. The problem. Many Christian churches and Bible teachers skip over or soften the judgment of God. How often have you heard, I believe in a loving God? Well, I do too. But they say that because judgment is so unpleasant. So why even talk about it? To be a faithful witness of God's Word, you have to declare all of God's Word. And part of being a faithful witness is declaring that our God is a God of justice. And being just requires that God judge. You can't be a just God and not judge. You have to judge sin. The second death spoken of is where there is punishment without pity, Sorrow without mercy. And that's awesome to even consider. But there's also a second life, or what believers call eternal life, where there's unparalleled joy, fulfillment of God-given purpose. Having lived a few more years than most of you here. <laughs> Only makes me a little more experienced, not a little more bright. <laughs> Many people slide into depression from a lack of purpose. I'm convinced that we go through eternity accomplishing the things that God has created us to accomplish. We will have purpose. We will have cause in heaven. God has a plan and a purpose for each of us, and we will understand that plan in fullness. And God will equip us then to accomplish His plan for us. 
We get an inkling of this when Jesus declared, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you can be also. God in the flesh, Jesus, ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago. And he's been preparing a place for us. What do we relate that to? How do we relate to that? For me, I like to go back to Eden, as in the Garden of, <laughs> the Garden of Eden. I believe in the same way that Adam was given knowledge and ability to care for the Garden of Eden, how it was Adam's joy and delight to be caretaker of Eden. He named the plants, he named the animals, and he took care of them, and he took care of them in a perfect environment. To me, that is a glimpse of heaven. And if it isn't heaven, at least it's the millennium, all right? <laughs> so take your choice there. And today, even today, part of our worship of God is rewarding service unto God. I think I speak for all of us when I say, Our desire is to hear from the lips of Jesus, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. I think that would suffice for all of us. But on the flip side of that, I think one of the most depressing things of life is not to have the, the satisfaction of accomplishment, not being able to ever point to a job well done, not having the delight of doing beneficial works that we were created for. In heaven, our eternal home, we will have purpose. We will have the ability to accomplish what God has created us for. Our heavenly works will bring us joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, and it will also bring our God joy. The second life, just like the second death for unbelievers, the second life for a believer is eternal life. And for that, may God be praised. Amen. Amen. Next week, we'll look at chapter 21, and we'll see God create a new heaven and a new earth. You may want to read ahead. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Hard to believe we're almost through the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Father God. First of all, I want to express a deep-felt thanks that we do not have to stand in the great white throne judgment. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his atoning work on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that your judgment went on Jesus, not on us. We accept Jesus. We honor him as Lord and Savior. 
And we thank you so much for him. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross. And so, Lord, help us to realize, though, that we, too, will be judged according to our works, and we will be rewarded for those works. Help us to get that into our minds and hearts, Lord, that we're not just doing good works to be recognized, but we have an eternal reward with you by doing good works. So purify our motives, Lord. You know how we can get so selfish in our motives, so keep our motives pure, keep them clean before you, Lord. And we look forward to the day when we will be with you forever and ever. So come quickly, Lord Jesus, is our prayer. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.